having a beer after a hard day's work once meant putting up with a six o'clock swill. The swill is not only unpleasant, it's also dangerous. Those who like beer, and surprisingly it's still legal to like it. South Australia joins all other states in abandoning the six o'clock swill. You're tuned to the Six O'Clock Swill, episode 51, coming to you from Australia, a happy outpost of the Kingdom of Charles III, who, by the grace of God, is the King of the United Kingdom, Australia and 13 other dominions, head of the Commonwealth and defender of the faith. I'm Nick Cater, joint custodian of this fine podcast, together with Tim Blair, blogger not just to the nation, but the entire glorious empire of Charles upon which the sun never sets. Later on, we'll be getting an insider's perspective on plague management from journalist and former colleague Simon Benson, co-author with Jeff Chambers of Plagued, Australia's Two Years of Hell. And we'll be catching up with the news from Martha's Vineyard, where sanctuary islanders have reacted with outrage at the arrival of troubled and teeming masses yearning to be free, thoughtfully delivered to their doorstep Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. But there are questions tonight about how exactly his administration convinced dozens of Venezuelan migrants to board a plane to a small Massachusetts island. There's absolutely no infrastructure in Martha's Vineyard to support any migrants. But first, Tim, we have to begin with the outpouring of inconsolable grief amongst members of the Australian Republican movement who are stunned and shocked by the warmth <laughs> to which the Australian people have welcomed the new king. It seems that the death of the Queen has not quite delivered them the inheritance they thought was their due. This is correct. Last week we speculated wildly about how things might actually go backwards for the Republican movement in the wake of King Charles' ascension, and it has happened exactly so. We first had a Roy, Mar a Roy Morgan poll that showed a five-point swing to the constitutional monarchy, five points away from the Republicans, which, which puts support now at 60-40, which I think is more or less where it was after the referendum in 1999. It's pretty much the highest it's ever been. A lot of the Republicans are trying to play the... Yeah. And Republicans have largely gone quiet. They say it's as a mark of respect, or at least their bandana-clad leader, Peter Fitzsimons, says it's, 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 we're speaking, it's, He actually wrote that we're holding a respectful silence, and I'm not sure <laughs> if it counts as a respectful silence if you say that out loud. Mm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> no, exactly. It's not silence, is it? Yeah, yeah. They tend to be noted by not hearing anything. But, yeah, they've been a little bit quiet, and I think also an element of that might be Oh my God, what's happened? We expected everything to spin around so quickly when the Queen left us, and instead, no. Well, we can have some, uh, I'll give you some detailed analysis of polling conducted by Compass Polling for the Menzies Research Centre. And it turns out King Charles is far more popular than you might imagine from the tone of the conversation on the ABC or around Lower North Shore barbecues, which is essentially the same conversation. 75% mm -hmm. of Australians agree that Charles will make a good king, compared to only 33% who say he's weak and out of touch. Doesn't accord with the narrative, does it? No, and also he's, he's made a point in previous interviews as Prince that he would be a very different individual as king because the role demands that. It demands a, an apolitical stance. So there was a lot of crossed fingers and wishing and hoping that we'd get a green king who would preach climate messages from the throne. But he's not going to do that, and I think that there'd be a, an element of, of the support for him would be simply due to that. Yeah, well, why is it why is him just to stay out of any controversy? He's not going to be King Thunberg I. No. But approval ratings, essentially a 75% approval rating, Anthony Albanese would kill for that, wouldn't he? Love it. Oh, any politician would, yes. It's an extraordinary number. I mean, I know that it's the first week, so it's always going to be high. But I think when we were talking last week about perhaps the novelty of a king after having a queen for so many years in Australia, that this would, would play well, at least in the early days, for King Charles. So... All things are up for the monarchy. Yeah. Good for them. Yeah. Now, interestingly, you dive down into this poll, looking at age groups, because there's a clear difference between the sort of battle-scarred baby boomers who harbour this historical grudge against 
the dismissal of Gough Whitlam in the same way that the Palestinians hold a number of historical <laughs> grudges about the theft of olive olive groves and various other things. And the, the Irish, of course, never really got over the the potato famine. But they, So they're dug in and they strongly, they are strong supporters of the Republic or in some cases strong supporters of the monarchy, but they strongly care about this. But up until this poll, younger demographics really didn't have a big care factor there. About 20% of them in the last poll hmm. we did back in January had strong opinions either way, most of them just in the middle. But now that's hardening up, and it's hardening up in favour of the monarchy. So young people have looked at this event this week, they've seen what's happening, and they said, yeah, 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 we think we like that. We like that more than the other one. So it seems to me this is <laughs> Republicans are in a lot of bother here. I don't think this is going to quite deliver them the dividend they're expecting. Well... People on the left put a lot of faith in various articles, articles of faith, you might say. For example, it was always just a given that as all the as all the diggers began to leave us, that support for Anzac Day and reverence for Anzac Day would decline. Exactly the opposite happened because we knew what we'd lost and we wanted to mark what we'd lost. We wanted to celebrate those people. We wanted to commemorate their service. And the way to do that is to just keep making Anzac Day a bigger and more notable event, which can only be done by public will. It can't be engineered. You can't mandate that people go to dawn ceremonies and so on. And of course, the other one, as we've mentioned, one of their other articles of faith was the Queen leaving us would, would rock the status quo to such an extent that it would only be logical that people would swing behind a republic. Mm. No, they got it wrong again. They're they're pretty good at getting it wrong. Mm. Yeah, look, I mean, in the end, I kind of get it. King Charles, of course, as we said last week, his first and primary role, his full-time job, if you like, is obviously as as king of Australia. And it does irk us a bit that he's taken on all these sort of, all this moonlighting of king of various other dominions such as the United Kingdom, maybe the response is not to go declaring a republic, but just to have it out with the British government. Say, look, we're sick of this. We're sick of this. We want our king back. We don't want to share it around. Yeah, we want our king back. Hands off our king. And by the way, while you're at it, we want that top right-hand corner of the flag you nicked back. It is not (laughs) as the so-called Union Jack as you would have it, but it is, in fact, it's the ancient flag... The Aurora Nation, isn't it? That's what it is. Well, I'll take your word for it, but you seem to be nudging very close to a Cavaliers versus Roundheads uh, kind of scenario with our British pals. Mm. Is that where you're going, Nick? I won't like it. By by the way, (laughs) Tim, I had the the wonderful pleasure, it was a pleasure, of singing for the first time, God save Mm. our gracious Mm. king the other day. Was it a pleasure for people who were listening? (laughs) I doubt it. Well, luckily I was there... wonderful institution the Christchurch at Lawrence where they have the most magnificent choir who sort of managed to drown out anything we do but it was quite emotional but I tell you what there's a, here's a warning yeah. if you haven't sung it yet uh, this is very relevant in this day and age there are some pronoun traps in there there really are oh yes Send yes him victorious yeah you don't just replace you don't just swap out queen for king no. it's a bigger rewrite than that on him she it they be pleased to pour. May may he or she it defend our law. It's a nightmare in this day and age. <laughs> it always comes back to pronouns. It does. On the subject, I've got more binary binary news here. That poll I was talking about, because you can drill down on it. Yes. They ask, are you, are you male? Are you female? Or cushion? You know, you don't have to be either. You can be binary. I Here's the... Non-binary. Non-binary. Yeah. non-binary that's right. You're non-binary. LGBTQI mm-hmm. something. Now, here's the exclusive news here on the Swirl Worldwide News. 100% of non-binary people are support in support of the monarchy, according to this poll. Pretty decisive, isn't it? That's extraordinary. extraordinary. I'm not, I, That's a fantastic result. I'm not ruling out a sampling error there. I think there was one. What, what is the sample size? One. <laughs> but he, she, it, or it was steadfastly in favour of the monarchy, which is a good sign, I think. Well, we'll be able to identify this person when they sing they instead of him <laughs> in the anthem. But by the way, Nick, I'm not the first to make this observation, but 
Isn't the choice between being binary and non-binary a binary choice? Uh, yeah. <laughs> they should perhaps consider their issues a little more deeply there before they go with this non-binary caper. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it, there's an internal contradiction there somewhere. Tim. <laughs> yes. But interestingly, support indeed support for the Republic's gone down everywhere. So the Greens, amongst Green voters, support's mm. fallen from seventy four percent to sixty percent. Labor voters that's significant. Yeah, Labor voters were this is back in January were in favour of a Republic by sixty three to thirty seven. Now it's even Stevens fifty fifty. Coalition voters were about evenly split back in January, but now. You've never seen anything like it. They favour retaining the king as head of state by 72% to 28%. That's on the coalition side. So, Excellent. Unfortunately, monarchs don't live and die by opinion polls, which is, a, I think, why we like them, really. They don't have to worry about stuff like that. They just. But are polling companies, have they updated their kind of platforms? Are they asking teal voters? Are teal voters recognised as a group? No. Maybe for the for future compass polls, we should we should add teals in there. I think we should, shouldn't we? Teals. Yeah, it'd be fun surveying them because you get to wander around in the nicer suburbs. By the way, before all this came up, this teal campaign, did you know what teal actually looked like as a colour? I kind of had a clue. Only a clue. That it was uh, yeah, bluish, greenish, yeah. some sort of combination thereof but if i'd had to pick it out on a sort of a map chart or something you know a color map i would be screwed well that says something about you then because i think one of my cycling mates pointed out today that being able to identify the color teal was a sure amongst you know for a bloke was a sure sign yeah that you're gay <laughs> you're good with colors <laughs> so <laughs> And, and if, if there are any further questions, yeah, not that there's anything wrong with that. No, no, that's it always, wouldn't matter one way or the other. Not at all. Just an observation. We've all got very close friends in the teal identifying community. But if you needed a tiebreaker, if you're still a little confused, you have to ask them what colour torp is. You got me there. And if they were to give you a close and immediate definition of torp, well, are you talking with someone from the torp and teal community, of course? I had a friend once, she, she actually dropped a guy she was going out with because of a, a troubling conversation she overheard where they'd been to a wedding and when they returned from the wedding they visited her parents and the parents asked what's what the wedding dress looked like and rather than her giving a description of the dress, he did in very specific terms. Well, it was a white ruffled sleeve number with a sweetheart neckline, at which point she reconsidered his commitment to the heterosexual lifestyle. <laughs> it was over from that point. Amazing <laughs> that these things that happen in life that just change things forever. It's a rugby union player, so I guess that doesn't help. Rugby union, the controversial game last night. I don't know if you saw it, I didn't, but I heard the controversy. Last minute no. penalty. No, this was a French referee, right? Yeah. So I think Australia, am I right in thinking Australia were about to draw ahead in the last few minutes, thanks to a penalty? And because the, they took rather too long to take it, the French, play, the French referee reversed the penalty decision. I think it's clear payback for the submarine decision, don't you? That's what it is. It's a French saying that. It may be that, yeah. But like, isn't... I don't follow the code at all. I've only been to one rugby union game. And it seemed to me that it was a series of arbitrary penalties with some running involved in, in between times. The penalties were the main component of the game. Mm. Am I wrong or right? I, I, like, you're asking the wrong man here, Tim. I've never understood the game. I just half tune in so that I have something vaguely educated to say at barbecues. But I, I, I do gather there was <laughs> huge controversy last night. Alan Jones, of course... The, the, the most successful ever coach of the Wallabies was up in arms because the game has been, held, been played on a Thursday night, which he said was further evidence of the sad decline of this once great sport. I couldn't quite get that, but I guess if you used to play on a Saturday afternoon or something, that might be great with you. 
Well, yes. And also, it's rugby union, so it's of little consequence to the broader world. I think you're going to go to different barbecues, Nick. If you're being forced to follow rugby union results and have opinions on them, just so you can make up conversation with your barbecue mates, find another venue. Any other venue. The greatest ever wallaby, I think, or so he tells us, is now, of course, none other than Peter Fitzsimons. Uh, arguing for Republic. Didn't he have issues with a French player at one time? A considerably smaller French player? Did he? I think there's video of it on YouTube. I'm unclear about what happens, but I don't think Peter wins. He never wins. He's not winning He's not winning now with the Republic, is he? <laughs> no. He hasn't given us too many predictions lately. He famously withheld a prediction about the election because in the last election cycle, he was as bold as he usually is and then was made to look a fool by the result, of course. But I'm not sure. But I think he's prediction shy now, which is annoying because for certain journalists, yeah, he was just free copy. Yeah, but he did make that prediction five years ago in The Australian. He said, we know that whatever happens when King Charles inherits his mum's job, it's on. I suppose he didn't say what was on. <laughs> we didn't know that it was going to be a strengthening of support for the monarchy, but... Well, I think any reading of that, you've got to say, he thought this was going to be the moment. He thought we would be a republic by now. Absolutely. A week of Prince Charles? How are you going to put up with a whole week of Prince Charles? My goodness. Uh, they were badly wrong. Oh. Or goodly wrong. Depends on which way you look at it. So joining us now, Simon Benson, co-author with Jeff Chambers of a marvellous new book called Plagued. It's the inside story of two years of hell under COVID-19 in Australia, in which Simon and Jeff take us through what was happening behind the scenes of the now defunct Scott Morrison government as they attempted to save us from this Chinese peril. I don't, know, I don't want to assume too much from this virus, which had come from some unknown source. Simon, welcome. It's a marvellous book, by the way. I really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed it most because it's clearly, and you can tell me, it's, you clearly wrote it as you went along. You wrote it at the time. And as things emerged, you wrote them down. And the beauty of that, of course, is it's wonderfully free of hindsight. And there's plenty of people who are always wise after the event. You didn't fall into that yep. trap. Yeah, good day, Nick. Tim, it was great to see you the other night at the launch, Nick. Very good to see you. Thanks for coming along. What a good launch. The great Paul Kelly himself launching your book. That's a great honour. Oh, it was. He was 98% complimentary about your book, of course. It's not quite the book that he would have written. <laughs> he had a swipe on the way through, but <laughs> uh, I think, I, as I said on the night, like uh, in any forum on any topic, Paul Kelly is an impossible act to follow, even if the topic's your own. Yep. But back to if you. Wrote an auto, if you wrote an autobiography, Simon, he would still have superior insights at some level. Correct, correct. And he would he'd make you feel impoverished in your in your assessment of it afterwards. <laughs> your knowledge and awareness of your own yeah. career. <laughs> so true. And we'd respect him so for it. So true. You know, he's a brilliant man, and it was yeah, it was an honour to have him launch the book. Yeah, no, it was a great night. But so, no, I just want to, obviously, the story of COVID is also the story of the last government. Governments in Australia very often lose elections a long time before a single vote is cast. An easy example is Labor lost 2013, some years earlier, when Julia Gillard introduced a carbon mm. tax. Was there a particular moment like that for the Turnbull government, or was it an accumulation of things with COVID being perhaps one of the prime issues? Look, I think, and I think a lot of people would make this assessment that Perhaps the yeah, the day they lost the election was when they set up the National Cabinet in March 2020. And Scott Morrison himself admits now, and even in parts through the book, that the, the politics became not impossible for him, but impassable, I suppose. He was sort of damned if he did and damned if he didn't with the National Cabinet. It was set up yep. as a structure to actually manage a pandemic. But as a political structure, it was always going to be a problem for the federal government, considering it was managing a bunch of states who effectively had more power than the Commonwealth, as we all know now. That's right. And that's something, and you mentioned, Nick, before hindsight, that's something I think in hindsight, a lot of people in government would admit was a problem for them going forward after that. But going back to your original question, Nick, 
about the book and the structure of the book and how we went about it. You're right. It was written about events that were happening as they were happening. And I mean, a lot of the writing obviously went into the back end of the process, but the information gathering and the interviews we were doing were not retrospective or reflective, reflective form journalism. It was, we were trying to capture the mood of the people in government at the time, how they were responding to events at the time, what they were faced with at the time. And to give it, I think that in that sense, we were looking to portray an honest book in the sense that it wasn't a rear view mirror exercise because in hindsight, we're all great judges. It was trying to capture what they were thinking, why they were doing things as they were doing them and what they were confronted in at the time. And they obviously made mistakes. I can't remember the author of, or authors rather, off the top of head. There was a wonderful book written in a similar style to yours, Simon, uh, about the 2016 election, the Hillary versus Trump election, and it was written from within Hillary Clinton's campaign, mm. and very much like yours, it was a, a, a almost a daily reading of events leading up to the election mm. defeat. And I think only the last chapter had elements of hindsight to it; the rest were as is, and it's actually all, all the more powerful. Mm as a work because you get a sense of the shock. They never saw this mm. coming. They didn't know that they were going to go down in such a flaming heap and, uh, and the mistakes were made so much more visible in the rear view mirror than uh, they'd ever been at the time uh, of the campaign. So I think your book's got that flavour as well, which is makes it, I think, a very effective historical mm. document as much as anything else. And also a racy read. Theirs was a racy read or mine? <laughs> yours. No, yours, mate. Yours. <laughs> Theirs had Hillary in it, so you know, you've got an advantage uh, there just on the, on the character. What you do by getting into that detail is to expose the incredible amount of micromanagement that was involved, stuff that you would never think was a Prime Minister's job in the early stages of the crisis in particular, and for good reason. They didn't know what was going on. The chat section here, let me read it back to you. Eventually, purchasing limits had to be imposed on toilet paper, limits on pharmaceuticals enforced and curfews on shopping, only for essential items put in place. At a press conference on the 18th of March, Morrison issued an extraordinary plea to Australians to behave themselves. Mm. I can't be more blunt about it. Stop it. That's not who we are as people. Mm. Four days later, he warned Australians to comply with public health orders to be prepared or face the consequences, and that meant tougher restrictions on the way. What happened at Bondi Beach yesterday was not okay and served as a message to federal and state leaders that too many Australians are not taking this seriously enough. Because when you look back on this now, you go, well, that's ridiculous. I mean, we now know that I don't think there's a single case of anybody catching COVID-19 outdoors, let alone on a sunny day at Bondi Beach. But in those those days, they really feared it. And Prime Minister, and I'm not sure that he had to do this. I think it was his choice, his style, that he got down in that micro level of man- of management. And perhaps in the end, we don't want our prime ministers to do that. What do you think? That's it's a really good point you make. I know Ben Morton, uh, his close friend and a former mem- member for Tangy, as you would know, he once described Scott, I think, when he was state director and Ben, I think, was running for a, a central coast seat in New South Wales. I think the nickname they gave Scott Morrison back then was Busy Fingers. So <laughs> he, That's a perfect yeah. description of him in this book. <laughs> Micromanaging is his thing. In, in, in defence of Scott Morrison, in that context, though, maybe you, you did need a micromanager. Maybe he was the right bloke for the right occasion at the right time, considering what they thought they were faced with. A lot of it was... That's a good point. That's a very good point. They were fighting a phantom, as yeah. it turned out, but they were really mm. fighting it. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good way of putting it, fighting a phantom. They really didn't know. So, I mean, some of the, some of the uh, modelling that was coming back to them was just... I, I describe the book as a sort of a blend of genres. It's a political thriller meets horror story. They really thought that they were going to have body bags piling up in the streets like they did in New York and in Italy. Oh, yeah. That was their worst fear. So, obviously, in hindsight, with hindsight, that was really probably never going to occur. In Australia. I remember, Simon, you might have heard these sort of stories as well, but I had friends who worked at rural regional hospitals and they were reporting trucks showing up with sort of emergency morgues mm. on the back. And that was in the very early days. And we were seeing those videos of people in China just keeling mm. over. All again, in retrospect, maybe a little bit fake, <laughs> like those stupid car, like those crappy cars they make, mate. But yeah, they really were dealing with something that, can you imagine, would the election be different if it was held 
later this year rather than earlier this year? The mood has shifted a lot, hasn't it? I think the election result might have been different if it had been held a year ago. And obviously there was a lot of talk about, about that at the time, about, and then, but then Omicron came along too. Look, I think in terms of what happened to the Morrison government at the election, everybody has an assessment of why that occurred. But I think what it, what it, what Scott Morrison allowed to happen, though, was a vacuum in terms of the normal politics of the day that they were so focused on COVID for the for two and a half years that they left no room for anything else. But they also, going back to the point about National Cabinet, he'd also empowered a bunch of state Labor premiers to attack him. And he felt that he couldn't fight back because he thought... Well, but, he, but this gets back to your analysis of, of the National Cabinet. Simultaneously empowered state leaders who used that power to their advantage electorally, as we've seen in several elections. But it also had the effect of making Morrison look adrift mm. and bullied mm. and pushed around. Which state premier do you think played the game best? Was it Victoria? These guys have only boosted their support by being mean to their communities. Mm. And Morrison's gone, and he granted them that extraordinary, those extraordinary platforms. Absolutely, absolutely. But in hindsight, though... It- Things he may have obviously mm. would have done things differently, but at the time, mm. I think it was. I, I like to use that Matthias Corman quote from that press conference yeah. during the, you know, when they handed down the budget and they uh, uh, announced those extraordinary measures. He said, Well, what was the alternative? I think that their greatest fear was that you would just have a complete fracturing of the Federation. Uh, I think there was a yep. term they used to use in, in one of the government departments of chaos at the curb, whereby the Commonwealth could enact some restrictions, say the border restrictions, or it could lift border restrictions and allow Australians in, but state governments could stop people coming out of the airport if they wanted to. You needed some harmony in the Federation to actually have some, at least some form of organised control and not have chaos. But then, of course, we did get moments of chaos. What you're you're getting at, Simon, I think Paul Kelly summed up up rather neatly when he said Scott Morrison won the pandemic or won the management of the pandemic. I might dispute that in some details, but that was (laughs) Kelly's assessment. He won the pandemic, but he lost the politics. And Kelly, in his own dry way, pointed out the irony of that. I mean, here's a man who had been mocked, portrayed as Scotty from marketing, but Mm. It turned out he couldn't market his way out of a paper bag in the end. That's essentially it, right? Well, he described it far more eloquently than I did, obviously. But no, essentially, and I think I think he would honestly admit that to himself, that he lost the politics. But he lost the politics on a whole range of other things too, as yep. we know. Well, I know he does. And I no. know too, I hear this, that he's a big fan of the book. He doesn't like everything in it. There's some aspects where he wouldn't agree with perhaps your criticism or your angle on it. But he thinks it's a fair book. In fact, I heard that he felt it was such a vivid account of what went went on behind the scenes that it gave him goosebumps to read it. Somebody, and so that's a sign of a very good book, I think. Some parts of it might give him post-traumatic stress disorder <laughs> yeah. like when you read yeah. some slabs. Yeah, it? how would you feel about that, Simon? But look, you basically allow us room as readers to be critical. You don't lead out criticism you just say this is the way he managed it what's your criticism and my big criticism which i came back to time and time again is emergency powers Hmm. they have emergency powers which are in place for emergencies only to be used for a short amount of time in this case under the biosecurity act extraordinary emergency powers i mean basically made number two to health minister greg hunt didn't it Hmm. i mean that he could just basically do whatever he wanted which is fine and that i think they by and large the federal government not the state governments were fairly circumspect in the use of those powers not always i've got some bones to pick with them there but mostly but they kept them in for too long and the, the trouble with that is you don't have to take decisions back to the party room you don't have to take them to the cabinet you certainly don't have to run them past parliament where the rough edges might get knocked off yeah. and it's a dangerous situation you could just end up with some very bad policy decisions do you agree with that i do and greg hunt i think if you asked him would probably privately admit that he was shocked that those that legislation got passed in 2015 when it did. When he describes it in the book as, as being as the divine right of kings in terms of, I guess it's the equivalent of plenary powers, when you, that you can't even delegate them. So once once they're enacted, once that, that provision is triggered in the Biosecurity Act, then 
and the health minister is effectively the most powerful person in the country. The irony, though, the irony about the legislation, and I think it was a realisation that they came to, and that's why they were tiptoeing around the states a bit from time to time, was that the only thing that the health minister couldn't do, apart from locking down the country generally and being able to direct troops onto the street, if they weren't able to direct a state official to do anything. So it basically meant you had a health minister at a federal level had all these extraordinary powers. You know, you'd shut the borders, stop people coming in, tell people to stay in their homes, but he couldn't tell the state health officials what to do. And so you've, they, they were actually... Well, it is, and I think that's obviously a problem with the legislation. I mean, I think there's lots of problems with that piece of legislation, frankly, and I'd be surprised if it wasn't revisited. Mate, we were just talking earlier about Scott... Morrison's busy fingers and his tendency to micromanage and condemning people for gathering on Bondi mm. Beach and so on. But I think we've already begun to forget that Australia was dominated by such a Karen mood at certain points of the mm. pandemic that if the Prime Minister had said anything like, ah, oh, it's just people having a bit of fun in the sun, mm. go for it. The condemnation <laughs> from especially the political and social elites would have been epic. Mm. Can you imagine if he'd taken a a far more hands-off, no busy fingers approach. Oh. He would have been torn to shreds a long time before the election. He might not have made it to the election. No, possibly not. There's probably a number of other reasons and other, uh, other things that may have triggered something like that as well. But um, I won't go into that. I, you, you raise a really good point, uh, again, as always, uh, Tim. But I, I, I think one of the things in the book, uh, that the one the thing I... The one anecdote I love about the book, and it goes to your point about you know telling people what to do and on Bondi Beach, was was this telegram that, and I mentioned it the other day, Nick, during the launch. This telegram that William Watt, who was the acting prime minister during the Spanish flu in Australia, while Billy Hughes was overseas, a telegram that was sent to him by I think by McCandy, who was the naval secretary at the time, and there was a big dispute about what to do with the troops returning on the ships. And the Queensland government at the time didn't want to let them off the ships. They wanted to quarantine them in the ships. And, and McCandy said, if you do that, they're just going to jump ship anyway. How can you keep a bunch of troops on a ship, tell them they can't get off, they've got to quarantine there because of the Spanish flu, they've just sailed halfway around the world to come home from a war. And he said, if you do that, you don't, you don't allow them on shore and intern them on shore, then the only alternative we're going to have is to shoot them. So... William Watt was the more of a let them on, let them on, don't be ridiculous, you can't keep them on a ship and let them on shore. So they did, they let them on shore and within the spate of 12 hours, half a dozen of these troops had jumped camp and run them up through Brisbane and they ended up getting arrested anyway. <laughs> uh, so. They were better times, they were better times. They, they were better times, but it's in a way, history repeated itself in so many ways 100 years later. Yeah, that, that way it worked, it was a total bookend, wasn't it? And it a lot of people I don't think had ever heard of the Spanish flu. I think a lot of people weren't aware of the, how closely the parallels sort of matched up and very primitive masks were being worn. I think leather was the style of the time back in the, back in the Spanish flu days. But, yeah, there were so many parallels. And, uh... Could you still get those leather oh. masks? I'd like one. <laughs> I knew this would go somewhere else eventually. <laughs> Back to topic, Simon. Yes. And uh, I had a very good question in my head. Just let me see if I can remember it. It was about you ask a question, Tim, and I'll think about it. Okay, we've got a handy fallback question. Who's your favourite teal, Simon? My favourite teal. I love them all. I'm a Sophie Scomps man till the day I die. It's the name. The name gets me. Sounds like a really crap reggae cover band, the Scots. <laughs> the big story of the 2019 election, of course, was this, to me, quite surprising, almost hatred, or certainly strong dislike of Scott Morrison amongst large sections of the electorate. And I really couldn't figure out where that was coming from. Perhaps you can, but an indication of this, and I suspect people, if you drill down, people wouldn't even be so sh even sure themselves why they found him such a distasteful character. And in the end, they were just looking, jumping on COVID and various manifestations of that just to justify what was an underlying feeling they couldn't put a name to. And here's my evidence for that. So under under the coalition between February 2020 and May of this year, 2022, where we had a federal election, a little over 8,000 deaths in Australia a little over 8,000. Under Labour, i.e. under Albanese since 
May 21, which isn't that long, six and a half thousand deaths. So we are getting to the point where there will be more deaths under Labour than under the coalition. But does anybody comment? Does anybody care? Is anybody interested? No. If it was the other way around, I suspect they would be. But is that right? Is it just that in the end they look for somewhere to work out their anger or some rational reason to put around it? I really don't know the answer to that. Those numbers are right. I think that the aged care numbers are even more startling. Yeah. I think more people have died in aged care in the last 100 days than the whole entire period before that during the pandemic. No one seems to really care. They cared a lot in July, August of 2020. It was a huge issue. It was the number one issue in people's minds, the number of deaths in aged care centres. Rightly so, but rightly it should be now too. It should be. It absolutely should be. I think people have got COVID fatigue and not in the clinical sense, I think in the mental sense that people are just over it and they don't really want to talk about it or hear about it anymore. And I think why people dislike Scott Morrison, I don't know. There are multiple reasons. I think one, one of the issues though is remember back in March, April 2020, his approval ratings were up. They were at Rudd-esque levels. They were at 70%. And I think a lot of people, maybe in government or maybe a lot of the people around him, misinterpreted that as Morrison being popular. And I don't think he was ever popular at all, well, clearly. But the approval ratings are more of a reflection of the fact that people believed that he was doing a good job managing the pandemic. Doesn't didn't mean they liked him. Mm. So one, once the pandemic, once there were problems with the management of the rollout to the vaxxers and so on and so forth, and there was a third wave and you could argue there was a fourth wave and people got absolutely sick and tired of it, that once his approval ratings came down and people started to question their management of the pandemic, there wasn't an underlying level of support for him that he could fall back on. I I think, look, to give Anthony Albanese credit for his political instincts, he early on realised that the only way that they were ever going to be in the race for an election was to tear down Scott Morrison's character and they set about doing that for two years and they did it very effectively. So you spent a lot of time with Morrison of course during that period and other times. What was your assessment of him in the end as a person and as a Prime Minister? That's a tough question. I think that he believed that what he was doing at the time was always in the interest of the country. Cynical people make different assessments about his motivations but during the pandemic but I think he you went you talked about micromanaging earlier I think that micromanaging actually worked to achieve the outcomes that they did but I think if in the end it, it became a real problem for him and I think he was blind to some of that I think he was probably blind to some of the politics he didn't read the politics as well as he did in the lead up to the 2019 election. So he, and going back to Paul's point that he won the pandemic but lost the politics. Do you feel, Simon, that Morrison, who famously frequently used the phrase Canberra Mm. bubble, do you think in a way he became a victim of the Canberra bubble himself? That he was paying more attention to voices within Parliament and within his own party than perhaps were more broadly speaking throughout the electorate? Was there, was that an element? Oh, look, yeah, definitely, Tim. I think so. I think that was... During the, for the pandemic, for at least 18 months, there was the group of people that he was talking to. Most of the time, he was talking to bureaucrats as well. So he was yes. entrenched in the Canberra bubble out of necessity, whether that was people out of Treasury, the Health Department. All. And so I suppose, in a way, the broader group of people, if you like, in the parliament that you would normally talk to and and use as a sounding board politically, what wasn't available to him because he'd reduced that group of people he was interacting with day in, day out for so long to a very small group of people who weren't interested in the politics. What's next, Simon? What's your next next masterwork? Having a holiday. I can recommend some reading for you. Oh, yes. What have you got in mind? Oh, it's just something written by a couple of blokes in Canberra. It's not bad. It'll get you through the flight. Yeah, it's pretty good. Oh, 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 okay. I'll have a look. I'll have a look. <laughs> Simon Benson, thank you for joining us on the Six O'Clock Swill. Your book, Australia's Two Years of Hell, The Inside Story, played, co-written with Jeff Chambers, is published by Pantera Press, the brainchild of our mutual friend John Green and a great 
work they do there. So look, thank you very much for that and for those insights. We'll talk to you again soon. My pleasure, guys. Great to talk to you again. Tim, Martha's Vineyard, lovely spot. Never been there, just off the Cape, Cape Cod, isn't it? We're not rich enough, Nick. Off the coast of Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard is known for its pristine beaches, breathtaking ocean views, and historic towns just waiting to be explored. This beautiful island has something for everyone. Smell the sea air as you indulge in a gourmet organic breakfast before heading out for a day of activities and exploration. For a complete listing of hotels and B&Bs on the island, visit massvacation.com. Sounds wonderful, Tim, doesn't it? Just the sort of place you'd want to go. Absolutely. If you were incredibly wealthy, the average house there in Australian dollars is worth about three million bucks. So mm-hmm. it's, and obviously where, where there are wealthy folk, people tend to vote Democrat. Developing tonight, Governor DeSantis defending his decision to send two planes of undocumented immigrants to Martha's Vineyard. And it comes as we learned the flight originated reportedly from Texas. Local 10's Cody Weddle is in Doral tonight with the backlash. Well, Governor Ron DeSantis says this is all about communities across this country coming together to share the burden of immigration. But there are questions tonight about how exactly his administration convinced dozens of Venezuelan migrants to board a plane to a small Massachusetts island. There's absolutely no infrastructure in Martha's Vineyard to support any migrants. Governor Ron DeSantis confirming the state of Florida chartered two flights to Martha's Vineyard, a Massachusetts island known to be popular among the wealthy elite, dropping off 50 Venezuelan migrants. And now he's carting them around like cattle from state to state. They're not happy, are they? I thought that they were all in favor of allowing the huddled message to come. That was the whole thing, wasn't it? That is exactly the point that's being made here by Ron DeSantis, Mm. isn't it, Nick? Mm. That you've got all these places, Chicago, New York, Washington, D.C., that declare themselves to be sanctuary cities, which is really easy to do, to be a, a sanctuary for refugees and asylum seekers and so on. It's very easy to do that when you're thousands and thousands of kilometers from the border, when you're not going to get lots of asylum seekers and illegal immigrants coming over the border. So these people are distressed by, at the moment, I think 50 or so, at the time we're speaking, about 50 islands have lobbed there. They've arrived basically... About 1.3 million, I think, yes. documented cases, possibly a, another million runaways, so that's probably two point, over 2 million people. And 50 is really causing them grief. <laughs> yeah, and of course, these little Texan and Arizona border towns of 20, 30,000 people. They don't have, these people are talking about, oh my God, Martha's Vineyard doesn't have the infrastructure. How are those little border towns coping? And they're just meant to just wear it? It's extraordinary. Also, I love how with that, in that collection of news reports, you had people saying, Vineyard's, Vineyard, uh, Martha's Vineyard, a small Massachusetts island. What, that's all it is now? It's not where Barack Obama has a 10-bedroom mansion? That's right. Really desirable place, but now the Venezuelans are being sent there by Ron DeSantis. It's suddenly Auschwitz. <laughs> it's changed overnight well, yeah. in their minds. It's a place that votes 80% Democrat. It's right. 89% white. Average house yeah. is three billion bucks. You can get an idea of the joint just from those numbers. And they call themselves, oh, we're a sanctuary, we're a sanctuary. And then they're like, oh, you're a sanctuary? Well, great. Well, it just, it just happens that we've got a few spare Venezuelans in Florida. If you're a sanctuary place... You'd have to love them. And then suddenly it's like, you're treating these people like cattle. Oh, my God. Poor little town can't cope. And I think we have audio, Nick, of a Martha's Vineyard resident complaining that, that her lovely little village community just simply can't deal with 50 freaking people. Wait a minute. It's, out, it's the end of the holiday season there, right? So presumably there are a yep. lot of houses sitting there empty. Absolutely. These are summer houses for the rich. Let's just go through some of the names of people just to give you an even even clearer picture of the sort of commie dump we're talking about. It is home to Barack Obama, as mentioned, Bill and Hillary Clinton, Reese Witherspoon, Oprah, Larry David, Spike Lee, David Letterman, Jake Gyllenhaal, Meg Ryan, Chelsea Handler, Rosie O'Donnell, Neil Patrick Harris. Now, that's just their, their holiday residences. They're all empty now. They've just got maybe a couple of staff looking after their properties. But that whole community is nothing but spare bedrooms. It's 
the ideal place to put a bunch of illegals. They've got nothing but room. As you rightly point out in those border towns in, in Texas, there's a real problem, right? And it's not just the people, it's the expense. Somebody has got to put on all the services for them. They've got to clothe them, feed them, give them some form of welfare. And at the moment, yep. that's expected to come out of state government coffers. Now they're being sent to yes. Democrat states. Oh, the demand is on. This should come out of the federal government. Suddenly it should be a shared cost. <laughs> <laughs> it's just really Absolutely. sneaky. But in the end, you see, they have these... Rod Henderson, American commentator, talked about luxury beliefs. Luxury beliefs are these great moral, yep. high, virtuous positions that you can have on things like immigration and climate change because you're rich and you never feel the consequences of them. You never have to pay for the cost of these. Yep. Now they're being made to pay just a little bit, not nearly as much as, say, the folks in El Paso are paying, but it's a little bit there and it's upsetting them deeply. Absolutely. And uh, I'm, I'm just going to look up just quickly what the average wage is in Del Rio, Texas, which is one of the towns that are affected on the border there. Okay, the average annual salary for an average job in Del Rio, Texas is 34 grand a year. Now, the people I mentioned to you before, they would literally not notice it if that just suddenly vanished off out of their bank account. They would have no clue. Del Rio, however, they're not in five, six, seven bedroom houses. They don't have staff and, and they're finding their communities absolutely swamped by thousands of people, sometimes just by the hour. And yet these vineyard creeps have the actual balls to cry, that, to, to complain that they're being swamped that their community is being taken over and it's an invasion? Really? It's a, this is just such a beautiful deal because the reason that all of these illegals are arriving is because President Joe Biden is a screw-up who won't do anything about it and he appointed Kamala Harris, his vice president, as a special border overseer. She just bailed on that for no particular reason. And she was actually asked during last during the week, is the border secure? And she said just straight out, the border is secure. Anyone who can turn a television on or look at a website can see just people streaming across day after day. I mean, these numbers aren't making themselves up. They're real stats, thousands and leading up to totals of millions of people. So this is a way of making Democrats in very heavily pro-Biden areas actually wear the cost of the policies they support. It's almost a perfect political move. Uh, governors... Doug Ducey of Arizona, uh, well, Abbott of Texas, to give them their due. They are sharing the love around. They're not just sending them to Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. I gather they sent some, a few busloads this week to to Kamala Harris's house in there, I think in Washington State, as George Ritchie in Virginia, <laughs> uh, parked them outside her place. I would have think that would make her day. It's her chance to really? show her love and virtue and generosity to these poor downtrodden masses. Yeah. Hooray for the diversity. We were talking about bubbles with, with Simon Benson, but these people live in wealth bubbles, social bubbles, political bubbles, and they've never had to deal in any sort of direct way with, with the issues that they're dealing with on the southern border. Suddenly when it happens, it just takes a few dozen people and they cry like idiots. It's adorable. It's, it's almost too perfect. And at the root of it, Tim, I'm right in thinking it was a decision to scrap the Trump administration's border protection measures, which were put in place on the grounds of COVID. They yep. didn't want people coming across with COVID. So they've been scrapped. So now anybody can come across. Vac They're coming across with COVID now, mate. <laughs> yeah, vaccination status, irrelevant. Nobody checks. And yet, if you're an Australian citizen and you're one of those people who, for, yeah. for sound reasons, decided not to get vaccinated, you would not be permitted into the United States right now. You cannot enter the United yep. States as an unvaccinated person through an airport. So I think the best way, if you were an unvaccinated Australian, is probably what get the flight to Mexico City and walk up to the border, wouldn't it? I mean, That's just, the best way of getting into this. Go for a bit of a wander, yeah. yeah. Be a fairly long walk from that far out. You could probably join what they call one of the caravans. You could make a you can make a holiday out of it if you started in Venezuela. Great holiday for the grow nomads. Oh, they love caravans. Now, what final question, Tim? Yes. At what point do the the, the Democrats, the, the sort of pro refugee border open people at what stage do they wake up to themselves realize they've been total hypocrites and apologize profusely for their hypocrisy when will that happen next week after predictions have you have you ever noticed that to happen nick you've been around 
You've been observing leftist politics for many, many years. Have you ever seen them say, man, we are such frauds. We really screwed that up. And it's about time we admitted it. It, it took, how many years did it take Labor to realise that it was actually kind of inhumane to drown people and it was a better idea to not put any sugar on the table in terms of our own refugee problems? It takes a long time, doesn't it? Yeah, it took them a long time to work that out. It took Albo, he was one of the last holdouts. You know, I just can't, I couldn't find in myself to turn away a family. They got there, but there was never any self-examination. No, because on those rare moments where it does happen, Tim, they just switch, just like that. It's just like the winds change completely. Mm. They change and then they go, oh, well, of course yep. we all know that we shouldn't be supporting people smugglers in their evil trade. Nobody's ever supported yeah. that. And suddenly it's like complete lack of memory whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, that's why I've always been sort of creeped out by people who, who say that they're Labour people. It's not that they've got a particular political position, really. They're just Labour people. So when Labour's position changes, so does theirs. Isn't that strange? <laughs> your thoughts and beliefs, your core beliefs as a human being, are decided for you by a bunch of dimwits in Canberra and at various party room meetings. It's kind of an unfortunate way to be. I mean, people like Bob Ellis, they spend their entire lives entire worthless pedophilic lives treating labor like a religion oh well, i guess you know people seem to need one he certainly did more evisceration of hopeless progressive dimwits next week tim i suppose same time same place absolutely <laughs> there'll be more there's never any shortage there's never any shortage nick next friday next friday marketing your diary the yes. australian republican movement are relaunching their campaign for republic we'll be able to see how that goes <laughs> maybe we should go along to it where's it being held at Martha's Vineyard, we should. that'd be nice. We should yeah. record the swill live from there, from Republic Central. We should interview them. <laughs> that'd be fun. Try and find <laughs> any that are on A, a fixed income, or B, on the minimum wage. That'd be fun. Great stuff, Steve. So you're from the Central Coast. I always like to think of it as the Martha's Vineyard of Australia. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> yeah, good on you, mate. And uh, we'll talk again next week. Every American and LBJ is with Australia all the way. Australia is the best place in the world to bring up a family. But we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. How good is Australia? Yeah!